Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the lift in mask mandates, new environmental regulations, and Ukraine. On Monday, a judge ruled or repealed uh, the CDC's extension of the mask mandate on federal uh, aviation. Uh, So this uh, mask mandate had been in place uh, for a while now, although not nearly as long as you would think. uh, It it really wasn't since the start of the pandemic. Um, But this ruling from this judge, I, you know, when it came out, I paid pretty close attention to because to me, uh, I am really careful about uh, judicial decisions. I'm very um, weary of judges ruling from the bench instead of, or creating laws from the bench instead of simply interpreting laws. And something like this, even though I personally think this is a good, in terms of, you know, policy matter, I think this is a good policy. I think uh, that the mask mandate on airlines was stupid, especially with all of the exceptions. So if you are drinking, then you don't need to wear one. Or if you're eating, you don't need to wear one. Uh, but other than that, you have to wear one. It just, it, there, it was ineffective. And not to mention that airlines have some of the airplanes have some of the best filtration systems uh, in terms of filtering the air. But, you know, so policy-wise, I think it's a good decision. And so the t- temptation can be, well, because I agree with the policy, then it's a good decision. If I don't agree with the policy, it's a bad decision instead of actually considering the opinion itself. And so if we look at the opinion, um, and I have not read the opinion, I've just uh, listened to uh, people who have read it and have talked about it that I trust uh, and, and have read things about it. Um, so, it, But you can go and read the opinion if you like. Uh, and essentially there's three components to this ruling. Uh, so there's one uh, the judge ruled that the CDC had exceeded its uh, statutory authority. Okay, so in other words, that the CDC did not have the authority. It went beyond the law that gives them the authority to regulate in this way. Now, uh, from my understanding, this uh, comes from a limited reading of the word sanitation in the statute. Uh, in the statute. And so the judge is has a very limited view on what uh, it means to uh, pro- essentially provide sanitation or mandate sanitation in uh, this realm. And so I, uh, from my understanding, I do not think necessarily think in this way that this was true, uh, that this is a good ruling in that way. Um, sanitation is in the context of the statute rather broad. Uh, and so the CDC does have statutory authority to do that according to the statute. Um, so I don't necessarily agree with this decision in that regard. However, the aspect of the ruling that I do think was rightly ruled is that the uh, APA was not so the APA is uh, essentially the act that all administration administrative policies have to go through. Uh, so if you are a, an executive branch administration, so the EPA, the AP, or the uh, CDC, all these different regulatory bodies, you have to go through a certain process in order to include a regulation. You can't just announce a regulation. You have to go through what is called a kind of a comment and review process. And so you have to release the potential policy and then leave it open to the public for comment and review. And uh, the only way that you can rule or you can announce a new uh, uh, policy without going through that process is in the case of emergency. And so what the CDC has been doing in order to uh, go uh, skip over this comment and review phase of uh, releasing a new uh, executive order, so to speak, uh, is uh, they have declared that COVID uh, pandemic was an emergency. And so the uh, 
judge here essentially is saying that no, we're no longer in an emergency. It is no longer qualifies as an emergency. So you have to go through the proper uh, APA uh, format. You have to go through the proper process. You can no longer use the emergency process. And I think that is absolutely correct. Uh, I, I think we are past the point that uh, the pandemic can be used as an emergency measure. Measure, And you can just point to the pandemic and say, well, this is emergency. Because uh, if we do that, then everything's an emergency and everything is legal. Uh, the government can do whatever it wants. And so I do think this is a correct ruling in that regard. So uh, again, I, I, uh, the, the first aspect, I, I don't necessarily agree with the judge here. The second aspect, I do. And the third aspect is whether to address the uh, case in front of the judge or to uh, stop this uh, nationwide. That's what's called a nationwide injunction. Uh, and so uh, the judge chose to uh, institute a nationwide injunction, which essentially stops uh, the federal mass mandate from all, you know across the country, uh, not just in this uh, specific case that was in front of the judge. Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion on that one, um, other than it, it, we, it affects the entire nation uh, at that point. Uh, so again, don't look just at the policy and whether the policy, uh, you like the policy or, or uh, hate the policy, but actually look at the ruling itself and uh, the reasoning that the judge gives. And you'll see, I mean, probably like I do, a little mixed, um, but at the same time, uh, it, I think that comment and review needs to go through so that if the APA was not followed, then uh, it needs to be uh, gotten rid of until they go through that proper process. In other domestic news, uh, the, the uh, New York Times had a report that came out this week uh, where they reported that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, said that in comments after January 6th that he would urge uh, President Donald Trump to resign. Uh, he reportedly also talked about how he wished others in the Republican Party, like Lauren, uh, Lauren uh, Boebert, would be uh, kicked off of Twitter as well. And uh, he would go on to deny this. He would deny that he said these things. And then almost, uh, this I think it was the same day, uh, audio tape came out uh, that clearly backs up the report that he was clearly he had clearly said is clearly him, and he has he clearly said those comments about Donald Trump. Uh, it, ha it has not the audio for the Lauren Lauren Boebert comments has not been leaked yet, but the New York Times has alluded to the fact that they uh, do have audio for that as well. And so in other words, Kevin McCarthy was caught in a lie. He had denied that he said these things, and then literally later that day. Uh, it was clear that he had said them. Now, the, I don't usually think things like this are important because uh, politicians lie. Politicians do uh, things like this all of the time. It shouldn't come as a surprise that politicians are say one thing in public and another in private. However, uh, this, I think, uh, does have some uh, potential uh, ramifications. Uh, so... It, it's not a surprise that this is how many Republicans were talking after January 6th. I mean, at the time, reports were talking about how uh, the Republican Party, Republican leadership, uh, people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and all, all sorts of different Republican politicians were angry at Donald Trump, were done with Donald Trump, and the January 6th was kind of aligned in the sand for them. And then, you know, a month later, they are back at uh, Mar-a-Lago kissing his feet. So, I mean, this isn't a surprise that they were talking like this at the time. However, it is important that to, that he uh, McCarthy lied about this and then got caught in his lie, uh, because that has impacts on the entire Republican uh, brand, 
Uh, so because he is the minority leader, the House minority leader, he is seen as being in le- he is in leadership. He's he kind of sets the policy uh, way that the uh, Republican Party goes, uh, particularly now because in Congress, since you know the last few decades or so, uh, probably the last ten years or so, the the leadership is pretty much where all legislation gets done. So it used to be where you had these committees, and those committees would drop legislation, they would send it to the leadership, and the leadership would then determine whether it went to uh, the floor, and it kind of go through the normal legislative process. Well, now. Very often, it is just pretty much legislate. It is the leaders of the party uh, writing up the legislation, and then the uh, delegates, the other Republican and, and Democratic as well, politicians are just expected to kind of sign onto it without having really any say over what's in it. Uh, and so, who's in leadership really matters. And with this report, we really do have the potential for some shakeup in the uh, as uh, in the leadership of the Republican Party. So. Uh, if the Republicans take the House in November, like everyone pretty much is uh, projecting them to at this point, that would mean that Kevin McCarthy is in line to be Speaker. But how will this tape of him uh, getting caught in this lie impact those chances? Because what could happen is you could have someone uh, you know, in the Republican Party use this to uh, kind of undermine Kevin McCarthy and take uh, leadership for himself. I mean, politicians are a an ambitious bunch, and so uh, that is not out of uh, the picture here. And so if that happens, then who will do that? Uh, who will end up in Republican leadership uh, when they, because uh, it's almost a foregone conclusion at this point, uh, get the House of Representatives in November when they get control of that? Uh, because, again, it, since leadership is so important, who uh, kind of jockeys for that leadership position will set the policy uh, way that the Republican Party will go. And so if we want to see kind of what the policy um, program of the Republican Party will be uh, when they get uh, possession of the House, then uh, it is important that we pay attention to who is in leadership. And uh, Kevin McCarthy may be uh, kind of have be a little in hot water right now within his own party. I don't expect him to lose. I don't expect, I don't care if the uh, you know country writ large views him poorly. What matters is how his Republican uh, caucus members view him and whether they are willing to vote for him to be uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, so it's, it, it kind of seems, seems like Washington, D.C. gossip, but it does have real-world implications if uh, the leadership changes or even if Kevin McCarthy ends up being the Speaker of the House because he will guide legislation from here on out. And then moving on to some environmental regulations. So Biden uh, announced on Tuesday that he would restore stricter environmental standards for approving new pipelines, highways, power plants, and other construction projects. So uh, in this new, these new environmental regulations, uh, federal agencies will have to take into account the, quote, cumulative impact a project would have in areas such as air and water quality, wildlife habitat, and climate change. Uh, this, uh, these regulations will uh, take effect next month. So these environmental regulations were put in place, uh, beef, or they were put in place before the Trump administration. The Trump administration uh, got rid of them, uh, citing that they basically led to cumbersome uh, regulation. They uh, led to projects that were really needed to be done not being able to get done. And uh, I, 
I think my position on regulation is rather clear at this point. Uh, these environmental regulations, I'm sure they're being set with the best of intentions. Uh, but it, if we're just going back to the knowledge problem that I always talk about, uh, it is very difficult to know the cumulative impact that a project will have in all of these different areas. And the, so it sounds good, like, oh, we just need to evaluate the economic or the environmental impact before we build something. Yeah, we, we should do that. And if there's glaring examples of and clear um, uh, consequences of the environmental damage that could be done, uh, then we should, you know, evaluate those projects. Um, but just making uh, a pro making sure that a project meets all of these various standards like we have here it is it really is uh, going to be more cumbersome which it's kind of it really infuriates me in that the uh, Biden administration and their main kind of legislation uh, accomplishment so far uh, of the D Democratic Party since they've had uh, control of uh, all the branches uh, they, the only thing they've gotten done is infrastructure. They passed a, you know, trillion dollar infrastructure project. Okay, well, if you're going to build infrastructure, if it was so desperate that we needed to pass that legislation, then maybe the environmental regulations uh, that will probably prevent some of those projects from being implemented uh, aren't that important. Uh, you kind of have to decide, is the infrastructure the main concern right now or is the environment? And I'm not saying you degradate the environment to build infrastructure. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, if we're passing trillion dollar packages, spending plans on infrastructure because our infrastructure is so bad, well, the infrastructure impacts humans. And uh, humans, uh, in my eyes, kind of take priority over environmental, uh, uh, you know, wildlife habitats, for example. Um, and so, we if if it's that pressing so either okay either it's not that pressing and we didn't need to pass that package which is what i would argue uh, or uh, the environmental regulations uh, are just going to be more cumbersome than they're worth uh, because a regulation is going to prevent uh, it's going to be it's going to make things more expensive it's going to prevent uh, projects that need to be done from getting done uh, and so this is, uh, I, I don't like it. I don't like regulations in general and environmental regulations, particularly during the kind of uh, administration, democratic administrations, as uh, they really emphasize the environmental standards of the AP, EPA and, and things like that. So um, we're, this will have consequences. I don't know how much of consequences in terms of like everyday life, um, but it will make these infrastructure projects more expensive and more cumbersome to do, uh, which is never a good sign when it's tax dollars going towards it. And then finally, in national news, the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, alluded uh, this week to the Fed raising interest rates 50 basis points instead of the normal 25 basis points. Uh, so typically, when the Fed begins to raise rates, they raise at 0.25% uh, each time. Again, this is the, kind of the overnight lending that uh, that banks can, uh, the interest rate that they can lend at. And so if they are uh, raising it now, point, uh, you know, 50 basis points instead of 25 basis points, uh, this could be a sign that the Fed feels like they are behind the curve a little in fighting inflation. They're clearly uh, seeing inflation as a real issue, or they wouldn't... Uh, this is kind of, in other words, this is a more aggressive raising of interest rates than we have seen recently. Uh, I'm, I, I think it's probably a good thing. I mean, inflation has clearly been a problem, and one way to get rid of that inflation or to tamp down on that inflation is to get rid of the liquidity in the market. And so that's what raising the interest rates will do. 
Um, but it's never a good sign when, again, six months ago, the Fed is saying that this uh, inflation is uh, transitory, and now they're being more aggressive because they're behind the curve. Now, the market uh, was down, stock market was down, uh, and uh, on this news, uh, this whole week it was down pretty much. Uh, and some earnings have also disappointed. And uh, just economically speaking, at this point, most people seem to uh, be predicting some sort of recession soon uh, within the next year or so, year, year and a half, or at least an economic slowdown. That is, again, kind of a product of some of those uh, disappointing earnings where companies are slowing. Uh, we're kind of starting to see these earnings were actually kind of the first earnings of the impact, uh, economic impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what that meant for some country, or for some companies in the country's economy. Um, but the economy is going to continue to be an issue. It's going to continue to uh, impact people. Inflation makes uh, every it, it impacts every aspect of most people's lives. They notice it, and it's a real pressing political issue. Um, and uh, we'll see where we go from here. Uh, there's, you know, really um, at this rate. There's no telling how much inflation could run, uh, or you know, it could be over pretty quickly uh, if it's really just um, supply side related. Uh, we just got to get those supply chains figured out. Which kind of brings me to my international news this week. So, in terms of supply chains, one of the main issues of supply chains right now is Shanghai. So, Shanghai is in its fourth week of shutdown. So they have opened somewhat than they were previously, uh, but still very little. Uh, there's a ton of backup of ships that will have to go somewhere else or continue to wait at Shanghai. So remember, Shanghai is the largest port in the world. Uh, this will continue to impact supply chains. And as it continues to impact supply chains, it will impact inflation. We cannot get products, but we still have the demand for products that raises prices. This is all part of China's zero COVID policy, which we're really seeing the, I mean, just enormous failures of and impact of, where essentially they are not just looking to deal with COVID and live with COVID, but to eradicate COVID in their country. So we are about two and a half years out from when China first uh, got news and, and, and you know discovered the uh, COVID-19 uh, d uh, virus, and they are still in this mindset of eradication. And it's not working, uh, as we see, that it continues to spread, not just in Shanghai, but throughout China. And shutting down the economy will have enormous real-world impact, not just uh, you know in the near future, uh, but in the distant future, in the long term, because countries are going to be unwilling to invest in China, unwilling to uh, make their supply chains go through China uh, because of uh, the, un the kind of uncertainty around how their government will handle things like this. And so you'll see uh, supply chains continue to move out of China, not as a product of subsidies by the uh, federal government or tariffs or anything like that, but as a result of the free market and uh, companies looking out for their own self-interest and protecting their supply chains, diversifying away from China. So this will continue to happen, as I talked about last podcast with com uh, countries uh, or companies moving manufacturing to uh, countries like Latin, Latin America and, and Mexico, things like that. Uh, so this is going to continue to impact the economy and going to continue to impact inflation. And now for an update on the war in Ukraine. So Russia has captured the city of Maripol in southern Ukraine. This is the city that was essentially had been surrounded by Russian forces for a while. Uh, the, just endless atrocities were happening. They were getting bombarded. They were running out of food and water. So they did. Russia has captured that city now. They have moved uh, their other forces out of northern Ukraine, Ukraine and away from like the capital city of Kiev. So... 
they basically instituted a strategy to begin the war of uh, invading from the north, south, and the east. Uh, they were uh, kind of successful in the south. In the east, the, the fighting has kind of you know stayed put. And then in the north, they were pretty unsuccessful. Well, now they have withdrawn those troops in the north and reinforced the eastern regions. Uh, so remember, remember at the very beginning of the war in the east, uh, like the Donbass region, uh, these are these have uh, territories where Russian separatists have claimed uh, authority since 2014. And so, the, in one way, this is kind of the strongest. Uh, uh, Air support that Russia has in Ukraine, and they have now readjusted to focus on uh, the eastern region. They have moved their troops from the north, out of the north, and then to the east to fight uh, on the eastern front. Uh, from what I can read, and some military experts have said that this will lead to kind of more traditional and intense fighting. Uh, this will lead to like, you know, army on army, forces on force fighting it out instead of the kind of, you know, uh, you know, skirmishes and assaults and air assaults and uh, artillery that we have seen play out in, at this point. And this kind of fighting, this kind of traditional army v. army fighting, plays to Russia's advantage because they can essentially just overwhelm Ukraine through sheer force. It doesn't mean that they will. I mean, we've seen uh, endless examples this uh, of the war so far of Russia kind of screwing everything up. But one another advantage that Russia has here is the supply kind of lines that will uh, that they can will have to use to supply their armies are going to be much shorter. Uh, they will have d more direct access to the army and be able to uh, supply through those supply lines. So the kind of you know pictures of uh, Russia Russian army and Russian soldiers running out of things like food and water or gas in their tanks which probably will not happen in the east because they just logistically it works in Russia's favor. Uh, now again, that doesn't mean that Ukraine is going to be guaranteed to lose, but I wouldn't be surprised to see more losses as we go in the east there. Now. Another aspect of this is as Russia has withdrawn from areas around Kiev, we have seen just the devastation and the atrocities that Russia is committing and has been committing. Uh, they have been executing and killing on a mass scale citizens and civilians in the cities, kind of the suburbs around Kiev. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, mass graves of, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people being killed. Uh, they're being, you know, bound up and then shot when they're clearly not a threat. Like just the, and in fact, a lot of international bodies have now considered this a genocide. So genocide does have a specific definition. It's essentially the intentional eradication of culture, a culture, race, religion, et cetera, and language. You know, all, it has a very specific definition. Uh, definition in that regard it can't just be like bad things uh, and a lot of international bodies have now considered this a genocide that russia is not just looking to defeat ukrainian war but they are looking to eradicate what it means to be ukrainian ukrainian language ukrainian culture ukrainians uh, in general uh, and so it is truly horrific what is happening uh, and because of that uh, we also have you know millions of refugees approximately five million uh, refugees have now left ukraine uh, this is not not a surprise. When people experience war in their homeland, they like to leave, especially if they have a family. And a lot of these people are leaving our women and children because men are not allowed to leave in Ukraine. Uh, and these uh, refugees are going to continue to uh, climb these refugee numbers and the impact in other countries uh, I've talked about before. 
Um, and just the impact that economically, you know, if you leave, if you lose 5 million uh, of your population in Ukraine, it's going to be really hard to recover from that. Uh, and so, again, thoughts and prayers out to Ukraine and Ukrainians. This war is not over. And I just I continue to hope that Ukraine will eventually just be able to defeat Russia and Russia will have to withdraw and retreat uh, all of their army. And then finally, there has been some new tensions kind of uh, coming forth in Israel. Uh, so tensions in Israel have existed for, I mean, forever at this point. Um, but they really got heightened la- about this time last year. Uh, there was kind of an 11-day war where uh, the uh, Palestinians in, and, and Hamas in got the Gaza Strip were launching rockets, uh, thousands of rockets into Israel. And uh, these... Uh, this the tensions this time around have not uh, gone to that point yet. Uh, this area is so hostile that you never know. Uh, but what has started this last round of tensions is there have been some uh, recent terrorist attacks in Israel. Uh, most of them have been lone wolf of kind of you know people not acting with either the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank or Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, but there have been. They, their actions have been praised by some pa- uh, Palestinian leadership. And so uh, that's kind of what has started this thing off. And then uh, the Temple Mount. So the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem. Uh, it is the uh, holiest site in Judaism. So Jews, it's where the uh, the uh, Jewish temple uh, way back in like, uh, you know, Roman times uh, where it existed. Um, and so because of that, it's also where the holies of holies were uh, was. And so Jews, uh, if you've ever seen pictures of the Wailing Wall, uh, they are facing towards the Temple Mount uh, because that's where they pray to. And the Temple Mount is the, like I said, it's the holiest site in uh, Judaism. And it's, I think, the third holiest site in um, Islam. Uh, It's now a mosque is now on top of the Temple Mount that kind of came and took place during the Turkish uh, conquest of the region when they occupied the region. And... Uh, the Temple Mount, it, it, the the mosque that is on the Temple Mount, does not allow any Jews in. If you're Jewish, you cannot go in. It is just uh, for Muslims. And uh, Israel has been alleging that Palestinians and Muslims in the mosque that is on the uh, Temple Mount have been throwing rocks at the prayers down below, the Jewish prayers down below. They have been there have been clashes, uh, and then a missile was sent from Gaza. I believe it's only been one at this point, although I'm not certain on that, and that it could obviously change. So just, just uh, another thing to keep an eye on in terms of uh, this is always, like I've said, a, a region where things like this happen all the time, um, and especially with the kind of advent of uh, is- Israel's uh, Iron Dome, uh, where the, the system where they can basically, you know, 90% of rockets can be shot down before they hit anyone. Uh, the kind of damage that the Palestinian and got in, uh, in Gaza, like Hamas, can do has been limited. Uh, but these uh, just, it, it's it's really sad for the Palestinians because they will, you know, eventually they'll have to either overthrow Hamas or, and, and these things will continue to happen. Or um, if they don't overthrow Hamas, then they kind of, kind of expect to continue to be stuck in the crossfires between Hamas and Israel, the Israeli government, as they... Uh, kind of fight this out, and so the Palestinian people will, you know, get killed. They're, they, um, as Hamas, will actually use them as uh, basically human shields. And then finally, quickly, uh, the breakdown of the breakdown. So this is where I talk about my uh, newsletter, the Burnout Breakdown, that you can subscribe to on uh, Substack. Uh, this week I talked about Social Security. So uh, this last week was uh, tax season, 
uh, tax deadline went by and I paid my taxes and you know got mad all over again that uh, how much money I owed the government and uh, I don't necessarily mind owing taxes uh, if those taxes go towards something worth um, a service worth having. Uh, if the government only collected taxes for roads, I'd be okay with that because I need roads. The uh, government only collected taxes to support the government, I'd be okay with that because I support the um, um, the military. Sorry, if I said government, I meant military. Uh, if they uh, only collected taxes to um, provide a you know, service like uh, public transportation, I'd be okay with that. Um, however, uh, Social Security provides a service that is dumb, that is economically stupid, uh, that is detrimental to responsible citizens. Um, essentially, it is the government saying, hey, we're going to put a gun to your head, force us, force you to give us this your money, and then we're going to give it back to you in 40 years or whenever you retire after the age of 62. And I'm not even talking about the financial uh, viability of this system. Um, I'm just talking about the sheer idea of Social Security. And this is an idea that uh, both political parties, Republican and Democratic, have now essentially said, we're not going to touch Social Security. Well, they should touch Social Security. Uh, it, it is economically stupid because it is taking my money that I could invest, that I could save, that I could uh, put towards productive ends, and giving it to the government where they can essentially say, well, we'll kind of uh, match inflation in 40 years when we give it back to you. That's dumb. Uh, and again, I said this in the newsletter, but I don't say I'm not saying we should take uh, all Social Security paychecks from people that are getting them now and stop them. No, if you paid into the system, you should get what you've paid into it, either now or later when you turn 62. Uh, but we should stop the system for the future. Uh, future generations should not have their Social Security tax taken out. I understand that they probably will have to because of the economic inviability of the system because it's insolvent it will be soon because again the government sucks at or at managing money so why they think they would do a better job of managing my money than me is beyond me uh, but nonetheless especially you know when you look at inflation uh they're having they're inflating the money uh a left and right i mean inflation is is just outrageous right now and so um I just don't trust them. I don't trust them with my money. I'd rather have my money. I'd rather save my money. Uh, it leads to people also not taking responsibility uh, because they know that the government will take care of them when they get older instead of, you know, in your 20s thinking, I need to save for retirement. So it's detrimental all, all the way around. We need to think about stopping this program. Again, not now, uh, not for those who have paid into it, but for the future generations, we need to stop this program. It is stupid, uh, and that money deserves to belong to those people because the service that the government's providing is not worth them paying that tax. And with that, that is the end of the podcast this week. Uh, please like, subscribe, share. Uh, sorry that it has been a couple weeks since I've been able to do this. been a little busy, but uh, I hope to continue to regularly do this, uh, release this podcast on Saturday. Uh, so like, subscribe, make sure everyone sees this, uh, that you can. And I will uh, hope that you return next week.